0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's a topic that we've been discussing uh, pretty much relentlessly, <laughs> but, um, which, is, which is the oneness of God and how God is all around us. Um, but I found a, a new way to approach the subject um, with new, new sources and new information, and that may help to um, allow us to conceptualize this uh, better so so I'm excited to present it because it's um it's sort of more just uh more torah on 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 what I think is 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 probably in my opinion the the most relevant topic which is which is uh our relationship with God and experiencing experiencing God all around us um, because ultimately that that is what it's all about you know being in that relationship and and feeling and and knowing that you're in that relationship, so so the more that we can concretize that uh, in our in our in our hearts and our minds, the the more real um, God's presence in our lives will be. So so toward that end, let's just um, maybe we'll begin with just a couple of just old favorites, just to just to kind of reset the uh, reset the mind on, on the topic, and then we're going to go deeper into it. And, and with God's help, this is also going to, I hope, um, help us in terms of preparing for Pesach as well, because uh, the great holiday of Passover is coming up, and um, everybody knows that, 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 that Pesach leaving Egypt is the model, says the Zohar, for, for the, the redemption at the end of days as well. So there's a, there's a, lot, there's a lot going on with Pesach, and Therefore, that means that the preparation for Pesach is also very crucial. So, so all these things, Godwin will we'll, we'll tie together. But, but let's just begin and, and begin maybe with, a, with, a, with an old favorite, which is um, that, that I, I, I once imagined a conversation between two fish. And, and one fish says to the other, do you believe in water? And the other fish says, you know, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. Right? So, so what's the joke? The joke is that there's nothing but water. That all that exists is, is water. And yet here you see two very sincere fish being very philosophical, trying to understand the nature of their existence. And, and they, don't, they don't know. They're, they're speculating. They're not sure. But that's all that there is. Right? So the reason why I go back to that bit of imagery again and again is because we're those fish. We're those fish, and there's nothing that exists except God. But we have this concept. In in English, we have this phrase called hiding in plain sight, that something can be so openly apparent that just by virtue of the fact that it's absolutely everywhere, you don't see it. Right? And that is very much the case with God. So, um, as just a companion teaching, but I, I feel like we don't really get it till we hear this part. I was having lunch with a friend, and I asked him where he parked his car, and he said, across the street. And I said, do you realize you can't get to your car without swimming through godliness? Right? So that this is us. We're, we're literally swimming through godliness. Wherever we walk, we're swimming through godliness. It's all around us. All right, so now... So that's, again, just to kind of begin to get our minds oriented to the, to the presence of God, right? And, and I heard Reb Shlomo say something that, that, you know, had a giant impact on me. He said that people intuitively understand how far away God is, but they don't understand how close He is. And then he said these words, he said, the greatest Kiddush Hashem, the greatest sanctification of God's name a person can make is to show people how close God is, right? And and so I guess somehow that just kind of rewired my brain because after that, it's like all I wanted to talk about ever was just how close God is, you know? Um, because that that seems to be the most relevant teaching, especially for our generation. Because our generation just somehow... You know, every generation has its challenges, but I just think that 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 our understanding that we're within God's embrace at all times is somehow the breakthrough thought that 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 we really need to to get to the next level. You know, just um, before we go on, I heard I, I thought it was in the name of Rebbe Chaim Shmuel the Rosh Hashiva Mir Alav I believe it was in his name that he gave this mushal which is the muscle of a, of a, of a baby um, in its mother's arms. And he said the, mo- the mother, let's say, is traveling, We're making up the places she's going, let's say, from America, and she has the baby in his arms, and she goes to China, and now she's in China, right? So the mother is traveling everywhere, going from place to place. But from the baby's perspective... The baby has stayed in one place the entire time in its mother's arms. All it knows is wherever it goes, it's in the same place. It's in its mother's arms. So that's us and God. Wherever we go, because we're absolutely engulfed in godliness. Wherever we go, we're in God's arms. That's that's. This is the the fundamental reality of our existence. Okay. So now I want to give some new teachings, which is hopefully going to help us understand this idea a little bit better, um, or hold on to it a little bit better. And there's a book that I highly, highly, highly recommend. Everyone should get this book. It's called To Heal the Soul, The Spiritual Journey, I'm sorry, The Spiritual Journal of a Hasidic Rebbe. And it's um, translated and edited by Yehoshua Starrett who did a, an amazing job and um, it's published by Aronson um, and it's, it, if you don't know it it's a series of very short uh, journal entries that w- were made by uh, the Pia Sessna Rebbe, also known as the Eish Kodesh, also known as the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto Zecher Tzadach um, uh, LeBrucha One of the greatest Hasidic masters um, ever. And an awesome, 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 awesome Rebbe. Awesome Rebbe. And these diary entries are phenomenal. They're phenomenal. And I want to read from one of them. Um, These were recovered after the Warsaw Ghetto was destroyed, and they somehow survived the Holocaust. So, I mean... Not a lot survived the Holocaust. So if a personal diary, and some of his other writings as well, including a sefer called the Ish Kodesh, um, which is a commentary on the Torah, uh, survived it, you see that that's a very exalted, what we call, siyata de Shemaya, help from heaven. It means that God wanted us to live with these words. Um, so, So this is on page 71. It's chapter 29. It's called The Cosmic Secret. And I'm just going to, even though the whole, bless you, even though the whole entry is maybe a little over a page, I'm just going to read a few lines. Because there's, there's so much in it. Now, let me just set the stage. He's, he is writing, he's, he's speaking to the universe, not to God, not to God. He's speaking to the world that God created. In other words, he's speaking to creation. So imagine like all the star fields in front of you and all of earth and all the planets and all of nature and everything like that. He's speaking to that. All right? and, and so he says here at one point, only, only when I saw you as a secret could my soul grasp you and be enlightened. But if I relied on my mind to analyze and understand you, then my experience would disappear. No more visions, no more illumination, just darkness, cosmic darkness. Why do you, universe, so hide yourself to let so many be fooled by your material surface? Why don't you just reveal yourself as the window to the palace of God? Why do you make it it such an effort for us and such torment for the searching soul remove your curtain and let me enter into the chambers of god's palace with awesome quiet and cosmic silence your unceasing message resounds without noise to behold you is like beholding a great sadik deep in meditation your eternal hush grips us with awe as your total surrender to god's existence Draws us also into that rapture. That's, I mean, in my opinion, that's that's incredible. That is incredible. There is so much in that little section right there. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna get a little bit more to this later um, when we talk about Pesa Godwin. But let's just zero back in on, on the beginning of that, because I think that um, the Aish the Kodesh here is giving us a, um, uh, a very important key to understanding um, an approach to life. And, and this approach to life is something that's a game-changer. And let me just say it, and you'll understand what I'm talking about in a moment. He says... Only when I saw you as a secret could my soul grasp you and be enlightened. But if I relied on my mind to analyze and understand you, then my experience would disappear. You see, what he's saying here is that how are you approaching life? How are you approaching your understanding of the world? Are you approaching it as a solvable problem? And there's absolutely an answer and we're in the process of solving all of the riddles and all of the questions and everything like that. And the only thing that's stopping me from completely understanding everything is just maybe a little more brain power or a few more extra scientists working on the problem. That's the only thing stopping me from completely understanding absolutely everything, right? That's one approach. That, I would say, is the modern Western approach, right? which is formulated, you know, that's what we've inherited from the sort of Greek rationalistic um, approach to life, right? It's all there to be solved, and it's essentially a finite set, right? That's, that's, that's one way of approaching it, and I would say that's contemporary society's point of view. But now listen to it again. Only when, remember, this is one of the greatest Rebis ever, speaking to the universe... Not to God, speaking to the universe, to creation. Only when I saw you as a secret could my soul grasp you and be enlightened. So, again, it's a game changer. If one's attitude is that we're enwrapped in mystery then when you approach it from the standpoint that this is a great mystery that I'm involved in, then all of a sudden, enlightenment begins to open up to a person. And you can actually begin to explore and to be enlightened. Very, very different perspective. And what this is doing is it's opening yourself up to the real reality, which is the infinity of God, And by definition, the infinity of God means that you will be forever involved in an ongoing mystery. Because we're finite and God is infinite. So we can never have all the answers. Which means that the mystery never stops. But to embrace the mystery instead of to be vexed by the mystery, instead of, God forbid, cursing the mystery, right? But rather to be enlivened by the mystery so that we can look around ourselves and see so many questions and every question is a different portal, a different opening for us to walk through and to explore more. This is a very symbiotic, a very harmonious uh, relationship with God and with life and with the universe. And he says further, this is the path to enlightenment. So, so, I love that. And another aspect here that I love is this idea, again, just because it's, 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 an, it's an unusual conversation for someone to be having, for a Rebbe to be having, that he's talking, again, not to God, but he's talking to the universe, to the, to the creation of God. And that this visual is, is, is incredible to me. To behold you is like beholding a great saddick deep in meditation. Like to think of the universe as though it's like this, 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 like this tremendous Rebbe, like just in a state of deep meditation, that that's what the universe itself is. It's like this holy being deep in thought. And that the silence that he refers to your eternal hush grips us with awe as your total surrender to God's existence draws us also into that rapture. That the, that the tzaddik, that the universe itself is in the midst of a meditation, a silent meditation, but that it's completely given over and connected to God. And that that awe, that hush, draws us in and allows us to connect to God in a deeper way. I mean, this is... This is beyond, 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 you know? But, but let's continue. Let's continue. Because now we've got already a different perspective. We started off by saying that, um, right, we're like fish in water and we're swimming through godliness, right? But now this is a slightly, a slightly different bit of imagery that we're playing with right now. Now we're actually in God's creation. We're actually in, in a universe and that the entire universe is one profound meditation that's connecting to God. Right? This is this is this is very very interesting, you know. Um so, so let's go further. Let's go further. I saw another bit of, of imagery that I really loved, because this is, again, another perhaps possible breakthrough in terms of deepening our understanding. We'll, we'll build to it, because in order to, to, to understand this more fully, I want to give you just, just a quick overview. There's something, um, as you get more into um, Jewish thought, um, especially mystical and, and maybe even Kabbalistic Jewish thought, there's something that's called, uh, they're called the klipot or, or, or a klipa. We don't really ever really have been discussing it so much in, the, in these talks, but, but it's good to just get an overview of, of, of this idea. So, so a klipa is, is like a shell. And um, the, an example would be like, or a husk, it's also translated as often. Like, so for instance, if you have an orange, like you would say the, the, the fruit would be, that, that would be the fruit, but the encasing of the orange, that would be like the klipa, right? It's something that is, that it's a covering over. It could also be interpreted as a blockage, Right? So, when we're talking about it in terms of creation, and when we're talking about it in terms of our lives, the the klipa is usually um, uh, defined as aspects of impurity that are sort of blocking our understanding of God or our relationship with God. Sometimes people refer to klipot as um, if someone makes mistakes and things like that, as averas, that that sort of erects these barriers. And so, these are... These are all different uses of the term of uh, klipa, or klipot is, is the is the plural. But on a more fundamental level, you have to understand that um, that God by design is um, is hidden in this world. Right? Now it's it's always important to point out that God exists in this world as much as he exists in the highest aspects of heaven. So he's 100% as present in this world as he is in Olam Atzilus, in the the highest, highest aspects of heaven. Right? But he's also the most hidden in, in our realm. And there is no contradiction. This is this is another breakthrough thought that, that someone really has to meditate on and understand. That the hiddenness of God doesn't mean that he's any less present here. He's equally present, but he's quantumly more hidden. But there's no contradiction there whatsoever. There's no contradiction there whatsoever. And in fact, one of the great... Um, as we say, cash Torahs, right? Something a teaching that you have to have in your pocket at all times, is that in Hebrew, right? And remember, God created the world out of the Hebrew letters, so so the the each Hebrew word like has like an authentic. Uh, it's a portal into understanding that the nature of the thing itself. The Hebrew word word for world is olam. And the root is elam, which is. Ayin lamid Mem, which means hidden. So the word for world and the word for hidden are the same, same letters. It's the same root. Because God is hidden in this world. Right? That's by design. You see, the you're looking at the blueprint for the world right there. Oh, it's hidden. I mean, it's not shocking. It's not, what? <laughs> you tricked us. No, it's, it's right here. I showed you the blueprint. Right? So, 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 but when you understand that, then you've got a better sense of, of the reality of this world. Now, in order for God to be hidden in this world, right, while he's simultaneously everywhere, how can he be hidden? So he, he sort of enrobes in, in, in the world in this superficial level of uh, physicality and materiality. And remember, whenever we're picturing the creation of the world, we have to start with the idea of, you know, this, this surrounding light, what we call the orange sof, right? The light without end, the surrounding garb of light around God. And God takes this light and he condenses it and condenses it and condenses it until it becomes the physical world. And each time it becomes more condensed. And there are four major stops of condensation, right? Of compressment. There are four major stops, and that's what we refer to kabbalistically as the four worlds. Because as each major step of compression takes place, that's a, that's a quantifiable understanding in terms of how much more hidden God becomes each step of the way. So there are four major steps, right? And we're in the bottom of the four. And um, so interestingly, there are also... Four major clepot. All right. Now we're getting to the roots of the idea of clepot. Right. We're not just getting to the idea of oh, you know, um, I'm I'm creating clepot through my actions or things like this. That, that's one use of it. But now we're getting into a much more blueprint level, macro understanding of clepot. That they're part of the design of the universe, basically. And there are four major ones, and we learn them. Listen to this. Very, very interesting to actually get to the source of all of this stuff. Because, you know, you hear it referred to all the time. But you don't necessarily get down to, okay, well, where do we know it from? What's the basic idea here? So that's what we're doing now. So it comes from Yechezkel, right? The the, the prophet Ezekiel, um, who is one of the major explainers of sort of the, the architecture and the landscape of the heavens. And he says, this is um, from... Chapter 1, verse 4. So this is right at the opening of his of his uh, prophecies. So it says, And I looked and behold, a stormy wind came out from the north, a great cloud, a fire flashing up, and a bright sheath around him. Okay? So, meaning him, meaning the divine presence, right? There's no... God is infinite. He doesn't there's no him there's no body he makes bodies right but around his his conception of the of, of the divine right so again listen see if you can count now because i don't know if you heard it but he made he mentioned four barriers four descriptions and i looked and behold a stormy wind that's number 1 came out from the north a great cloud that's number 2 a fire flashing up that's number 3 and a bright sheath around him that's number 4 so from here we derive the fact that there are four klepope or four major steps going from the infinite life light to the physical universe now now those, so again, those four are are correlating with the four worlds, right? These four major checkpoints on the way from light to materiality, right? And they'll also correlate with all the other fours, right? With the Yudke Vovke and with every other four that you want to align along that that matrix, right? So well now you have now to go with all those different correlations, you now have four different clipots which align with each one of those steps. Each one creating an additional concealment till you get to this world where God is as concealed as he can possibly be, where if you look for him, you can still find him. That I heard from Rabbi Sitron. God is as concealed as he can possibly be, where if you look for him, you'll still find him. Like if you were a little more concealed, you wouldn't even be able to find him. So we should just appreciate that in terms of understanding the human condition, that if you think that God seems very far away, that's by design (laughs) on some level. But as you learn more and as you live more and as you open your eyes more, you realize that God is absolutely everywhere and he couldn't be closer and you're constantly in his embrace, right? But we get this starting point of concealment. Okay, so those are the four klippotes. Now, interestingly, um, the last klipa um, is called... And when I say the last klipa, I mean the highest klipa, the one at the very top, which is going to be... Remember, that will be the the least um, uh, concealing, right? Because each one is progressively more concealing, okay? So the, the highest klipa, which is referred to by Yechesco as... A bright sheath around him, right? That's something that's sort of like a little bit translucent, right? It's not it's not it's it would be the first step of concealment. Okay? So that's called Klepanoga. So if you've heard of klipa noga, like especially if you travel around in Chabad circles, you hear klipa noga all the time, right? So that's what that that is the that that's klipa noga. Okay, that's the top one. Now, Klepanoga has, unlike the other Klepot, Klepanoga has a very interesting quality to it, which is that it's a bit neutral, meaning to say that if you use this class of activities in your life, like say eating, for instance. Eating can be noga, for instance. So food meaning that if you use it in order to draw closer to God, then it has this translucent aspect to it. And it's not a negative. But if one uses it to just embrace their own materiality and physicality, and, and on the level of like gluttony, and remember, as the Ramban points out, one can be 1,000% glot kosher, and still be a disgusting glutton. <laughs> right? Like, being kosher doesn't mean that you're eating properly. It just means that you're doing that part of the commandment. Right? So, so always important to keep in mind. Um, so, so, if someone is misusing something, like food, for instance, then the klipa aspect kicks in, and that's the barrier aspect. <clears throat> so again, klipa noga is that category of things which correlates with the the um, the, the highest the highest klipa, um, which is just a simple sheath, like it's translucent, right? Like you can see through it, you know. So it's not much of a barrier, but depending on how you use it, you either embrace the translucent aspect of it, which means no barrier, or you embrace the barrier aspect of it, in which case it is in fact a barrier. So again, just to use a simple example, food is one of those things. Food either gives you energy to serve God, or food becomes this sort of like, you know, abyss that one plunges into. Which they just all they see is physicality and this world, right? So it can go either way. So that's the quality of Klipa Noga, okay? And again, it has that twin aspect because it's the most simple of the barriers and, 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 and the least has the least blockage to it, right? So then you always have to ask yourself the question Am I elevating it or is it bringing me down? Right? That's always the question that whenever you engage in one of these activities. Okay. So now, now that we've got an overview of the concept of, of, of the fundamental aspect of klipot, right? Let me get to this, I think, wonderful, just wonderful uh, visual that comes from the Tanya. Okay? And, and again, let's just set the stage. The idea is that wherever we are, we're engulfed in godliness, right? So that means that every single thing in this world is an emanation of godliness. Every person is an emanation of godliness. Remember, we have that that great visual, which is the idea that your soul is a piece of God, right? So how does that work exactly? And you picture it as a wave coming off of the ocean, Right? So that the ocean is, in that example, so to speak, like God. The wave is an individual thing, but the wave only has existence because it stems from the ocean. So your soul is like a wave. It has individuality, but its, it's entire existence and its individuality completely stems from the fact that it's an emanation of the ocean. Right. So, so that's kind of everything in the world. Right? We see it most potently, I think, from, from our the relationship of our soul and God, right? But it's 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 everything that exists in the world. Everything is an emanation of godliness. It's not God, but it is an emanation of godliness. Okay. So, so now how do I look at a stop sign or a piece of concrete? right? That's also an emanation of godliness. Mm-hmm. Like concrete, the floor that I'm standing on is an emanation of godliness, right? The styrofoam cup that I'm crumbling in my hand, like because I'm finished with my coffee, that's an emanation of godliness. Like, like my mind can't, can't get to that level, right? That's a little bit hard to really feel the fullness of God's presence. Okay, now comes along This speed of imagery from the Altar Rebbe, right? So, so, so now listen to this. He talks about, he gives two examples, a turtle and its shell, right? So picture a turtle and picture the shell on top of the turtle. And maybe even better, I mean, depending on the person, Picture a snail and the house, the shell, the house that is on the snail, right? Now, we don't really think about this so much, but let's just follow this through. The turtle and the shell is all the turtle. <laughs> the shell part is also the turtle. That's an organic expression and continuation of the turtle. The little house that sits on the back of the snail is also the snail. It's not some separate thing that someone just sort of like, you know, all the snails line up on the assembly, right? belt, And it's sort of like, okay, what's your job? Well, I put the, you know that shell part on the snail? That's my job. I just kind of plunk them down and then they're ready to go in, into your garden, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, that is organically. like if you can imagine like like the formation of a baby snail, like the snail part and the shell, which is a completely different like texture, completely different from the, the snail itself, are all forming organically at the same time. And the shell part, the house part, is very hard and protects the, shell, the snail. And the other part is very gooey, and that's the, that's, that's the body. So the Alter Rebbe says this is like this world, that these shells, these clipot, these husks are also all godliness. <laughs> Just like the shell on the turtle is all 100% turtle. It's all organic turtle matter. The shell, the house on the snail which looks like a completely different substance, made in a completely different place, is 100% snail, and is all part of the snail. That means that these emanations of godliness that we see around us, the floor that we're standing on, it's a very hard shell. It's a very hard shell, but it's 100% emanation of godliness the clothes that we're wearing are emanations of godliness. The place that we live, the shell that we inhabit, right? Because we also have a shell. The shell that we inhabit is 100% emanations of godliness. So now this is like, okay, now again, let's go back to the, to the words of the Piyasesna Rebbe, right? With awesome quiet and cosmic silence, your increasing message resounds without noise. To behold you is like beholding a great tzaddik deep in meditation. Your eternal hush grips us with awe as your total surrender to God's existence draws us also into that rapture. Like everything around us, everything around us are emanations of godliness. Some are harder like a shell, some are softer, like our own physical body. But you see, shells also mean darkness. See, and now we're getting deeper. Because the shell, the clipod, are things that block out the light. And they conceal the light. And the hard times in our life are like these shells, these blockages that block out the light. But the shell is made out of godliness also. The bad times are also godliness. I heard Rabbi Freeman say something. I never heard it this way so clearly. The classic line from Star Wars when Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father. <laughs> that the darkness, I mean, it was the best Kabbalistic shot that I've ever heard on Star Wars. The darkness itself is God saying, I'm your father. Because it's all godliness. It's just a question: Is it coming from the place of concealment, or not? But even the shell is 100%. It's just, it's just a different texture. Okay. So now, I told you that God, when we'd about how this relates to getting ready for Pesach. So let's let's now go deeper. So we just read on Shabbos, Parsha's Para. Um, so, so everybody knows that there are four maftirs, four special readings from the Torah that we have leading up to Pesach. And we're up to the third one. We just read the third one, so Pesach is getting closer. And um, Parsha's Para is very interesting. So I'll just talk about it on the most simple level, and then we'll get deeper. So on the most simple level, Parsha's Para is, is an announcement to the Jewish people that they have to be ritually uh, pure in order to be able to enter into the Beis ad in order to be able to go and um, bring the Korban Pesach. So the Korban Pesach was a, um, an annual offering that, that every Jew would bring. And it was really like your, so to speak, almost like I've, I've heard it referred to as your membership dues in the Jewish people. So it's a very, very fundamental offering and act uh, of participation in the Jewish people, the Korban Pesach. And uh, in order to bring that korban, like any other korban, you had to be in a state of ritual purity. And since that often, that means that you can't have touched a dead body, for instance, or, or a dead animal carcass, or something like this. There are a zillion ways to become tame, ritually impure. So, and this is men and women, obviously. So sometimes it would take a, a week or so to, to get to a state of being tahor, which means ritually pure, so that you could bring the offering. And so since it takes a period of time... That's why it's the third reading, right? Because this announcement is going out in, in communities all over the world. You got time now, get on it, because you got to bring the Korban Pesach, right? And, um, and you got to get yourself ready. Okay, good. So that's, that's the most basic level. That's the most basic level. So we read Parsha's Parah. What is Parsha's Parah? So we could read anything, right? Or we could just stand up and make an announcement, right? So what is Parshas Parah? So very, very, very interesting. Parshas Parah is the chok, the um, super rational headquarters of the Torah. Meaning the, the, the rational mind can't grasp the deep paradox of Parshas Parah, which is the ashes of the red heifer, And the great mystery of the ashes of the red heifer, and they say that Shlomo HaMelech, who is the wisest, right? Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, couldn't understand this. They say that Moshe Rabbeinu only came to an understanding of this at the very end of his life. Right? So this is, we're talking about deep, 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 right? So, what is it? That that The ashes of the red heifer, which would be mixed in with a couple of different things. The Torah tells you all the different ingredients. Um, That the one who would prepare the ashes of the red heifer would become spiritually impure. And yet, that same mixture, which made one person spiritually impure, would make the other person who was sprinkled on ritually pure. So how could it be that the identical substance, that working on this substance would make a person impure, but that very thing would make another person pure? How could that be? Both things together. So it's, a, it's kind of an endless discussion, right? But the point is is that, interestingly, this is, this is what we would use to remove the impurity of death. Anyone who is tame Mace, and by the way, all of us today have the status halakhically speaking, according uh, according to Jewish law, of being tamay meis. Because you've either touched a dead body or touched a dead carcass, or you've touched someone who's touched someone who's touched someone who's touched someone someone who has been in contact with that. So everyone has the status. And by the way, halakhically, according to Jewish law, this is sort of the major issue, or one of the major issues, about going up to the Temple Mount. A lot of people want to go to that area behind the Kotel, which is where the mosque is, which is more, more meaningfully where the uh, Holy Temple stands, right? That's the, where it stood and where it will stand again. And, and to be in that area, in a state of being tamemes, is, is an issue. This is an issue. So different people deal with it in different ways, but, but that's, that's the issue. Okay, but let's go deeper. Rashi says something very interesting about the ashes of the red heifer. He says that the mother is coming to clean up the problems of the child. So, who is the child? The child is the sin of the golden calf. So the mother cow is coming to fix up the eagle, the baby cow. Eagle means cat. So, how is... The, how are the ashes of the red heifer coming to fix the problem of the sin of the golden calf? So we have, to, we have to understand. And how is this concept of the ultimate chok, the ultimate mystery of the Torah, coming to get us ready for Pesach and redemption? Right? These are, this is what we're on right now. This is what we're trying to answer. So, so let's ask the question, what was so terrible about the golden calf? Right? It was a, a golden statue that we made. Right? So you can say, well, wait a second. Correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't there two golden statues of angels in the Holy of Holies sitting on top of the Torah? Like, that sounds to me like a much bigger issue than this golden calf. We have it in the Holy of Holies. Two stat—it says that you can't reproduce images in heaven. Two golden angels sitting on top of the Torah. How could that be? And the answer is ridiculously simple, because God told us to make it. <laughs> very, very simple. It's, not, it's actually not problematic at all. Aha! Uh-huh. But that gives us a tremendous insight into what was so bad about the golden calf. Because as the Basilevi points out, no one asked us to make it. No one asked us to make it. Let's go deeper. What that means is we decided at that moment, we became the ultimate arbiters of how we were going to serve God. With our rational minds, we decided how we were going to serve God. We made ourselves the final authority. And so, so now let's get back to that Rashi. Now the Rashi is actually very amazing. What well, was amazing before, but now maybe we understand it a little bit better. How is the ashes of the red heifer coming to clean up the mess of the golden calf? The golden calf was an example of us misusing our rational thoughts the golden ca- the ashes of the red heifer which is the ultimate mystery which is the ultimate command from god which is beyond the rational which we can never grasp with the rational is coming to clean up the mistakes that we make with our rational mind it's allowing us to transcend the limitations of our understanding and to be able to get to this place beyond ourselves and it's cleaning everything up <coughs> And it's allowing us to connect in the steepest way. Okay, now we're ready for the Pesach connection. It says in the Gemara, in uh, in in uh, in Sanhedrin, um, in the in the final chapter, in in a amazing section of the of the Talmud. If you've never read through it, um, it's it's just totally far-out teachings about the end of days, right, one after another. And there it says that Mashiach is, is, is not going to come at a time, it's going to come at a surprising time. It's going to come at a time that we don't have Das. Das is sort of like this notion of um, knowing. Like when we ate from the tree of knowledge, and that sort of brought everything into the world, that was called the Eitz Hadas, right, the tree of knowing, but anyone, as we've studied it many times together, it was really a, it was really a lack of knowing. As, as the Rambam says, that we had, um, before we ate from the tree of knowledge, we had truth and falsehood. Right? Ms and Sheker, Those were the absolutes. But then we had something called knowledge, which is completely subjective. We had the eight Hadass Tovarah, The knowledge of good and bad. Well, I have some news for you. What's good for you is bad for me, and what's bad for me is good for you. So all of a sudden it becomes completely relativistic, and we've lost the clarity of true and false. And now everything is this muddy gray area of good and bad, which are very subjective terms. So while we're holding on, the Gomorrah says, while we're holding on to this concept of das, this knowledge, this knowledge, this knowing. Mashiach doesn't come, but in a place where that das is is not there, that's a time when Mashiach comes. So So as I mentioned, the Zohar says that the Pesach leaving Egypt is the microcosm of every redemption that's ever going to come, including the final redemption, including Mashiach. So in order to really make ourselves ready for Mashiach, we have to let go of this false concept of knowing. There's a real concept of knowing. We say, Torah net, right? There is a hardcore understanding of truth. And that's what the Torah is. But then there's these shadowy levels of knowing where we don't really know. We're just, we think we know. Or to go back to the words of the the Kodesh, where we don't approach the world as a mystery. Where we approach it as this finite problem set that is just a question of a few more mathematicians and a few more smart people being born and a few more scientists getting grants approved. And then we're going to solve everything, Right? That's the surest way to lock ourselves out of enlightenment. That's the level of DAS that we have to let go of. That's the ultimate not knowing which leads us to the be vessels for the ultimate knowing. And if you think that I'm embracing some, you know, crypto form of ignorance, you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm saying the complete opposite. I'm opening ourselves up to actual true knowledge. Because anyone who truly thinks that they can know everything knows nothing. That in itself is a barrier. That arrogance is a barrier to understanding the ultimate truth. And now I want to go deeper. Because we just read Parsha Shmini, Which talks about the laws of Kashus. And I want to connect this now to the laws of kashus, right? You see, we... There's a section in the, in, 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 in the Parsha that discusses um, what animals that we can eat. And when it comes to these mammals... They have to have two signs. They have to have a split hoof, and they have to, the animal has to chew its cud. So the, the rabbis point out that that interestingly that one that we don't eat predators. You see that we don't eat predators. So for instance, um, you know like a like a vulture. Okay, that's a bird. It's a different category, but that's an example. A vulture is not kosher. Um, Snakes. They say snakes just kill in order to kill. That They often kill and they don't even eat what they kill. So that's one of the really loathsome aspects of snakes. Um... there are different animals like wolves, and, and, and tigers, and things like that, which are, which are predators, and they're, and they're not kosher. And they say that one of the reasons why we don't eat those things, and again, kashrus is a hoke, which means ultimately we don't understand, but nonetheless, we, we try to learn lessons anyway from it, is that we don't want to inherit the spiritual qualities of those animals ourselves. And this idea, you, you, the ancients have, have sort of intuited this idea themselves. Like, for instance, in, um, in, in, in ancient kingdoms, one of the things that cannibals would do is that they would, they would cut out the hearts of like the conquered general or king, and they would eat the heart meat in order to have their courage right because they believed that by by eating the enemy right that they would gain their strength or their courage or things like this right so so this idea you know different people's over time have intuited this idea and and the torah so that's 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 one thought that's that's proposed but the animals that we eat are not predators. We don't eat any of those animals. And I'm not saying definitively that the reason is because we don't want those attributes, but that is a Torah thought. That is a Torah thought. So we just want to eat you know, menchie animals. <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> By the way, I heard Rabbi Wolfson say, uh, or I saw him write something very beautiful, which is that all of the animals that went on to Noah's ark, right? There were there were two from every species, and of the kosher species, there were seven from every species. Like, which ones were selected? Like, did you ever think about it? Like, which of the boys? the ones that the ones that got onto the ark, w- which ones made it? And he said that they were the tzaddikim of that of those species. Like the tzaddikim of the animals in each species; those are the ones who actually made it onto the ark. Mm. A very beautiful idea, you know. So the animals that we eat, we only want to eat menches, you know, because it's like, we want to be menches, you know? So So, there's a literal cattle call to get on Noah's money. There you go. So so let's go deeper. So you have the split hooves, but let me just focus in on on the other aspect for a moment, which is the idea that it has to in addition to having split hooves the animals that we eat that are kosher have to chew their cud so what, what that means is is that the animal digests and then it redigests and then it redigests and then it redigests the same food okay it's got to it, it does that so so my question and this is my my analysis but my question is what, what does that mean exactly, spiritually speaking? If we're talking about, you know, that there's a spiritual correlation between the food that we eat and everything like that, and we're and the Torah, God Himself is zeroing in and telling us that it's this quality of the animal which is so desirable that it should digest and re-digest its food. What spiritual teaching does that have for us? So, what I would like to suggest is that. That's referring to a concept um, that we call in Torah, we call it chazorah, which means to review one's teachings. Right? Meaning to say that when you learn something, you're supposed to go over it in your mind, and go over it again, and go over it again, and digest the teaching, and redigest the teaching, and redigest the teaching. And that that's, that's an essential component to learning. Um, we were talking about it a little bit on Shabbos. And I, I, I say this not to scare you, but for you, if you don't understand this point, you're really going to be missing out in terms of a breakthrough in your life. Okay, so, so I'm, I'm telling you this because you won't make progress unless you fully understand what I'm about to tell you. If you just go to a class and you listen and then you don't really think about it till the next class you go to, and you go to the next class and you listen, you're not going to make much progress. That's, this is the sad truth. It's, it's, by the way, it's way, 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 way better than nothing. Way, 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 way better. But you will not make... It's not real Torah study, as we understand Torah study. Torah study comes from taking what you learn, and then going over it, you know, and you can, do, you can do this, by the way, as you walk to your car. You can do this as you drive. You can do this as you wait in line in Starbucks, right? In fact, I would say those would probably be the, the, the primary places to do it, actually. Um, and you break down the teachings, and you ask yourself questions on the teachings, and then you try to integrate what you've learned into what you already know so that all of your learning sits in front of you as one unified whole. And that you always have your learning in front of you, and you're constantly adding to your learning, but you're seeing all of your learning together. And you're asking, for instance, when you leave this class, you say, wait a second. You know, we've been talking about light becoming materiality for a few years now, right? Hmm. But now, what is this whole idea of four steps of the klipot? What were the klipot again? Oh yeah, that was from the Yecheschul. And what was it? Oh yeah, there are four steps. And what's the highest step? Oh yeah, that's Klipanoga. And what does that correlate with? Well, I guess that would correlate with the yud of the yudkei Kevavke, Right? You should all be doing this. Right? This is, this is not extra credit. This is, this is basic, what I'm talking about just now. Okay, okay, now you haven't had a chance to do that because you're still in the middle of the talk. It's like, ah, you know, (laughs) I'm I'm behind. I'm a bad student. You're not a bad student. Only if you leave the room, but you haven't left the room yet, so you're okay. Um, But that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Because as Reb Shlomo put it one time, he said every single new piece of Torah that he learns, the Torah is a new Torah. Why is the Torah a new Torah? because he's now seeing all of the Torah that ever, he ever learned through the perspective of this new thing that he just learned. Which means he's integrated this new teaching into everything that he's learned, and now it's a new Torah, because he's seeing it through the lens of this new piece of information. This is, this is learning. This is the quality of the kosher animal that digests and redigests its food. Okay? Now, all of this, you think, oh no, how do we go from the shell of a turtle and the house of a snail and the universe being a davening tzaddik to talking about chewing one's cud? Like, these things all seem very scattershot. We're talking about the same thing. And I'll I'll connect them and, and we'll finish up, okay? So, you see, the non-kosher animal doesn't review, doesn't chew its cud. That means, by extension of this teaching, if to chew one's cud means to review, that means that there's a quality that there's it doesn't have to chew anymore because it already got all the nutrients out of it. Which means that this material that it's chewing is finite and it's done chewing. Again, as that relates to us in terms of reviewing lessons of the Torah, we always refer to the Torah as the infinite compressed into the finite. You will never run out of insights into the Torah. That is the nature of the Torah itself. It is limitless. It is limitless. You will never run out of new information and new insights in it. They refer to it as the Rebbe's talk about, I know, Label Eger and many, many Rebbe's. Um, talk about the the nature of um, they make the the muscle that when a child suckles from its mother, the more it suckles, the more milk comes out right that 's our relationship with the torah. the more that we ask, the more that we pull down, the more that comes down that's 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 the relationship now if someone Okay, now, now we're going to use this to answer a question. <coughs> All right, this is a question that I've had for a while, but I never had a good answer, I think, or one that satisfied me until now. The rabbis teach that if someone eats non-kosher food, it, it makes like a klipa on your heart. That it makes a person spiritually insensitive. Non-kosher food does that. Why would, why would they single out non-kosher food for putting a barrier on your heart? Oh. I mean, there, there is a truckload of Averas, a truckload of things that they could have pointed out for something that could really put a barrier on your heart. But they focus in on non-kosher food. Why? So I want to suggest an answer now, based on what we've been learning. Which is that, you know what the greatest barrier in the world is? Again, if you look at God and you think that you understand God, if you look at God and you think, you know what, God is just a smarter, bigger, stronger version of me. Right? Or, God forbid, that really um God, because really deep down, like as the Ishbet's or Rebbe says, the Beis Yaakov says, deep down every single person thinks that they created themselves. It's not a rational thought. But deep down everyone thinks they created themselves. It's crazy. So the greatest the greatest barrier, the greatest barrier, is if you think that the Torah itself is finite. Because then you look at the universe itself and you see it not as the Pia Cesna Rebbe says that only when I saw you as a secret could my soul grasp you and be enlightened? Right? But where you see the universe as a finite set of problems that can all be solved. See, because then you don't have the need to endlessly review. Because if the Torah itself is just a book, if it's just a book that you've already read, then what do you have to go further into it for? Why? It's just a book. Shakespeare is also a book, right? The non kosher animal doesn't endlessly review. The non kosher animal puts into our hearts the notion that the Torah is limited, that God is limited. That perhaps were the ultimate authority. That is the negative attribute that we get from eating non kosher food. That is the klipa, that is the shell that we put on our hearts when we eat non kosher food. Because the non kosher food doesn't chew its cud, it doesn't review. And therefore, why doesn't it review? Because it thinks it knows. It thinks that there's no more to learn. And that's what gets communicated to our hearts. That we think that there's no more to learn. And that's the shell, that's the insensitivity which blocks us. That's the perspective of not seeing the universe as an endless mystery. The last book of the Torah, it's called Sefer Devarim. It's Moshe Rabbeinu's review of everything that's gone up into the Torah up until then. It's also called Mishnah Torah, which means a review of the Torah. So Moshe Rabbeinu at the end of the Torah is talking about everything that happened in the Torah. So how could it be that in Sefer Devarim, there's bunches and bunches of new mitzvot that weren't in the rest of the Torah? We're being told... That it's a review of the entire Torah. So what are all the new mitzvahs doing there? Those two things can't coexist. It's either a review or it's something new. But we're told that, no, it's a review. And yes, there's a lot that's new. (laughs) It doesn't go together. Unless you understand what we've been saying up until now. That when you review and you review, you find the new. You review and you review and you find the new because it's infinite. Because there are endless gems that are just sitting waiting to be discovered. You know, many people have a very good question. Why should I get out of bed? <laughs> I already did it yesterday. <laughs> I already got out of bed yesterday, right? I mean, people say, why should I wash the dishes? They're just going to get dirty next time, right? Right? So why should I get out of bed? I got out of bed yesterday. I got out of bed the day before. Why should I review? Why should I go back into it? And the answer is that when you go back into it, you find something new. And the part of you that tells you it's just going to be the same, that's just exile. That's the exile mentality. And you've got to break through the exile mentality. You've got to break through the shells around your heart. And then you get, right? you got to cleanse yourself of the knowing. (laughs) Because that's the etzadas level of knowing. That's the tree of knowledge level of knowing, which isn't a real knowing. Because there's a knowing above that, which is truth, emet. Right? Above knowledge of just good and bad. There's the absolute truth. And when you break through that level of das, that, that false knowing, which is like this great virus that's infected the Western mind, when you get past that and you embrace the mystery of the universe, the adventure of life, then you open yourself up to roads that lead to endless, endless, endless series of new opportunities. And Hashem should bless us then, That we should really cleanse ourselves, we should open up ourselves, we should open up our hearts, we should understand that wherever we go, even in the dark times, those are just shells, those are just hardened bits of like godliness, and that everything, everything is emanations of godliness, even the floor that we're standing on, even the clothes that we're wearing, right? And that we should just be able to really get farther and make a breakthrough in our journey and we be able really, really, really to bring that, that Korban Pesach in the Beis Migdash because God can do anything. God can do anything at any time. Nothing is stopping God. And all God wants to do is to bless us with absolutely everything. Here are some questions and answers. What you were talking about, about um, mysteries of the universe, right. close, it really parallels everything about relationships and not thinking that you know everything right that right right yeah it's a total it's a total guide to life because and I tell you something you know as someone who I'm speaking about myself right now as someone who's labored to not know you know I can tell you I'm so much happier not knowing. I'm so much happier I'm so much happier. You know this form of knowing can be a plague on the consciousness, on the mind. Because I know it's going to happen. And I know he's going to do that. And then I know he's going to do that after he does that. And now I've trapped myself in these bonds, and I don't know anything. I don't know he's going to do that, and that's going to trigger that, and that's going to trigger that. And now all of a sudden I'm paralyzed because I know so much, because I'm so smart. It's, it's, it is, it's, it is, A lousy way to go through life. You will enjoy less. You will be able to pat yourself on the back because you'll say, oh, he's going to do that. And then you'll go, oh, isn't it great that I know that because I'm so smart. It's a lousy way to go through life. It's actually using your actual intelligence against yourself. You have to be smart enough to not know. You have to use your brain to not know. And then, you, then paradoxically, then you begin to know more. But then, as you begin to know more, you have to be very careful to say, ah, now I know, because I knew not to know. Because the Yatzer waits for you at every single level. <laughs> so you get to this level, and you go, ah, I finally know. <laughs> now you don't know. <laughs> so <it's... coughs> But it makes life an adventure. You know, I'm just reminded. I can't say those words without thinking of my father. When, when he got his cancer diagnosis, he's left the world many years ago. Elul veshalom. Leven Sfeia Levi. But I, I heard it with my own ears. I'll never forget it. He said, he said to me. You know, when he said that he had cancer, he said it's the beginning of an adventure. He said, I heard the words with my own ears. I mean, what a fantastic way to go through life. Fantastic. You know? And we can all do that. We can all do that. That's free. It costs zero dollars. Zero dollars. You don't have to be admitted to any university. (laughs) You don't have to... zero dollars.